on today's show, we are getting to know Jen. But first, a word from today's sponsors. Andre Psyche is the freelance creator extraordinaire, someone who makes music, poetry, art, clothing, and lives to make others feel good. Search him up on any social media. It's Andre Psyche. That's P-S-Y-C-H-E. The next time you are looking to add some creative stimulation to your social media circle. Patreon.com helps creators like me earn a monthly income that will be put towards podcast expenses. Support the Getting to Know You Pod's creative endeavors through Patreon for as little as $2 a month. There are all sorts of costs that I had no fucking idea about associated with posting podcasts, not to mention the need for equipment and production. So dear listeners, if you've enjoyed getting to know any of our guests or just want to help keep the pod going, go to our Patreon. The link's in the description and your support of the Getting to Know You pod is very much appreciated. Two bucks too much? Here are three free ways to help. Get your thumbs ready. One, push the subscribe button on whatever app you're listening to the Getting to Know You pod on. Did that? Thank you. Two, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on your social media like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Go ahead, open those apps, click away if you haven't already. Thanks again. Three, go to Apple, write a review. The internet tells me this might be the most important and impactful. So thank you. Your support, dear listener, whether it's with your thumbs through our Patreon or ideally both, is greatly appreciated. And now, getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you. Putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely. And I just found out Jen is a fellow reading specialist who is, I have nicknamed Jenny from the talk now. Jen, thank you so much for coming on, letting people get to know you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Dude, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm so floored by the fact that you were talking about you being a teacher and then a reading specialist and then getting into law. So we might as well start with the origin story of how you are this lawyer who posts really cool, really funny, like, and very like to the point legal advice that just makes you remind yourself of like, Oh shit, this is what I should do in situations. This is how I should act. So I really like you as a follow on Instagram. I love it. But yeah. How'd you get to that point? Um, so I can go backwards. Um, Jenny Justice 555 became a TikTok lawyer in March of 2019. Um, as we were shutting down school for the pandemic, uh, as you might recall, it was a Monday when COVID started to really spread. And there was this word throughout the, the world that school was going to be sent home. Um, and we would all be home for a while. And so I got very concerned 
because I teach law. I run a law program at a high school here in Montgomery County, Maryland now. So I was a teacher first, right? So I was a teacher from 98 up until 2012. I taught in Maryland. I went out to California. I taught out there. Uh, got into juvenile justice and advocacy, trying to keep kids out of adult prison, trying to stop gang members from being charged with gang enhancements and uh, immigrant rights as well. So through that work, I I also became a union grievance officer and got really involved with the California Federation of Teachers as a political director, grievance officer, uh, organizer. So I started to hang out with more lawyers back then in about 2008 and realizing that uh, I kind of had a knack for it. I liked the lawyers I was hanging out with. California schools and education is pretty, there was a lot of issues and it was nothing I really saw myself wanting to go with for the long term. It's very expensive to live in California. Teacher salaries don't match the cost of living out there. Mm. So I also sat across the table from enough enough lawyers who I realized were kind of dipshits and I could do that (laughs) too. And I started looking at law schools that were inexpensive, law schools that focused on social justice. Um, I was a very pretty active activist uh, in California, working with organizations like the Watsonville Brown Berets, and uh, was kind of introduced to a lawyer at the American Friends Service Committee who suggested I look at law school. So uh, in 2012, I I went to, uh, came back here, went to UDC, University of the District of Columbia School of Law, got my law degree. Uh, 2016, I was sworn into the bar, ended up going back to the classroom after being an educational advocate with the Office of the Public Defender and uh, found this job running this law program at this high school. So that brings us up to 2019. I've been teaching these law classes and working with students, also teaching a government ESOL. And, uh, you know, I was taught two sections of government and the rest were law classes. And that week that we started to go out for COVID, I started to get really nervous of like, well, how am I going to stay in touch with my students? I knew they were all on this platform called TikTok. They were always watching the videos. I didn't really know much about TikTok, but I uh, had my law assistant, my my student legal assistant at the time, um, set me up on TikTok with an account. And, you know, we had like, like literally all of 30 minutes to like figure out my TikTok name and create a video. And so she just said, you, um, you can't have too adult of a name. You have to, (laughs) you can't, you know, you have to have like a a kid friendly name. Um, I saw TikTok at that time as a platform to educate. I think at that time, 2019, it was still a lot of dancing and lip syncing. There weren't a lot of lawyers who were really tuned into the idea of social media in law or to do any kind of legal anything lawyers were still very much scared of the issues of confidentiality of being um reported to the bar for giving legal advice on on the internet and things like that and i uh just threw that out the window i didn't really see that as being an issue because i saw this platform with you know billions of people on it as being a great way to share legal information and that was always why i went to law school and became a lawyer was to provide a public service, um, education, and uh, particularly for kids. 
So we came up with the name Jenny Justice. We started posting some videos. Another student of mine was like, you have to put your dogs in your videos. Dogs are TikTok gold. And I do have a German Shepherd and a little beagle. And they're very cute. And so I just started making videos. And within, uh, the, you know, by the next week, we were home for the pandemic. And I had all this time at home. Uh, Zoom school was very boring. I had a lot of time. And I just started playing with TikTok and making videos and being like a TikTok lawyer. There were maybe less than 100 lawyers on TikTok at that time. So I quickly sort of was found by the bigger creators. There were a few really big lawyers with big uh, followings on TikTok. And they found me and started like following me. And so with TikTok, um, there, it's all about clout and like people sharing their clout with you. And so, yeah, so like the other lawyers would like do duets and like tag me and I would have to respond. And so uh, from that, I just started gaining this following. And this just last week, I hit 13,000 followers on TikTok, which still is, you know, a kind of a medium sized account for an attorney on TikTok, because now there's thousands like, you know, lawyers of TikTok is hashtagged over a billion times now on oh, the app. Wow. So there's so many lawyers. I think through the pandemic that really came to the idea that you can use social media as a way to brand yourself as a lawyer. There's a lot of lawyers that do trademark intellectual property law and just the IP lawyers. I mean, the um, the um, personal injury PI lawyers are really all about TikTok. Some of the really good creators um, are, are the... Um, personal injury lawyers, they just have a lot of money. Some of them have actual producers, assistants that create, shoot their videos with them and for them. And so you have like CEO, uh, my lawyer, Mike, uh, CEO, lawyer, attorney, Tom, who's kind of fallen off. I don't know where he went, but he grew majorly. Uh, he has, I think hundreds of thousands of followers on YouTube. There was a couple other lawyers, um, who would, share their tips with the rest of us for growing on the apps. And we would have a zoom call every month that I hosted for the TikTok lawyers. So we got to know each other that way through the pandemic and it was a lot of fun. And I got to really build a cool national network of attorneys that way. I keep my niche very educational, uh, very factual. You see, I have videos that go to criminal law, teachers rights, uh, animals, funny lawyer jokes. Yeah. I'll, I've just started doing a little bit of like my gardening or, you know, maybe a couple cooking videos here and there, but I don't share my life on TikTok. You don't see my house. You don't see a lot of that personal stuff. I don't share my outfits. You don't do getting ready in the morning with Jenny justice. And that has probably <laughs> prevented me from growing exponentially. Some lawyers do a lot of that. And I think that opens your life up to uh, a lot of people that I just don't really fair, care to engage with in any personal way. I rather engage with the legal content and uh, things like that. So I just do that. And I, I, I really started even becoming a lawyer because a lot of my friends, as you know, like teachers, uh, particularly actors, artists, found themselves in financial straits. They didn't understand financial literacy. They didn't understand student loan things. And I tend to have a knack for business law. That's actually what I practice now with my law practice. I'm a small business lawyer. I'm general counsel for some companies, some nonprofits. 
And I grew that on my own just because I had a knack for the business law and I like it. Mm -hmm. I like working with CEOs and I like working with, I think they're entrepreneurs and many entrepreneurs aren't great business people. Some are, some aren't. So I was able to build a practice that way. I had a couple CEOs just really take to take to my work and trust me. And so that that's built up. I wasn't really making any money from my law though, until maybe uh, two years ago when I started to actually make some kind of money from it. So that's sort of how Jenny Justice and the TikTok and came about. I started repurposing my TikTok videos. Some of them go on Instagram. Some of the more serious ones will go on LinkedIn. But there's a lot that just stays on TikTok. Because <laughs> what happens on TikTok stays on TikTok. <laughs> um, but uh, I also, like you, yeah, I'm a reading specialist, which I did, you know, my third year of, of teaching. Uh, in 2001, I had a school district, Howard County, paid for my degree. And so I went to Johns Hopkins and I got a degree in, in reading and became a reading specialist because my principal advised me to get a master's degree in something that would get me out of the classroom if I wanted to. <laughs> yes. And that's Did what brought see? me to the reading and I like to read. So I just kept growing, you know, that way, growing my career that way. Um, I think a big question I get is how, how do I do so much? I'm so busy. And the answer is really simple. Like I don't have children and that's yeah. by choice. And I've been childless since I was, you know, 13. I knew I did not want to have my own children. And uh, it's just them. funny I, to put a date like I've been childless since 13. Like at the age of 12, your children went away. And then you're like, I have my own life back. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, pretty much since the time that I could become, I guess, my mother, I knew very, very surely that I didn't want to be one. And I think that's given me a lot of time and energy to put into Fuck my yeah. career, my degrees, my, you know, my life. So people seem to not understand that, but there's people out there who have children, who have whole families and do everything I do. Right. So that's very impressive. So do that's, that's a short story of, I guess, how I yeah. came to be here. Yeah. I've got one kid and me just having a job and like, so I coach basketball as well. And then trying mm -hmm. to do the podcast and squeeze time, I feel pinched. Being able to like work out, cook dinner, feel like you're not neglecting. And one child, one child. I can't imagine people with multiple children in these side hustles. But then at the flip side, the opening of time and the availability of just to pursue your interests without, not that kids are an anchor, but they, they are. Like kids should be an anchor. They should ground you. They should keep you within a boundary. It, um... It takes a lot. It takes a lot to be a parent that's going to be involved. So yeah, I imagine yeah. that would open up a ton of time for you to pursue these interests, which is really cool. Thank you. People often tell me I would have been a great mother, but uh, I know a lot of activists who are great activists and, you know, they're not, they, they just don't have the time to put into their families and then their children end up feeling neglected and like their parents chose the social movement over them. And I did not ever want to be that person. So I know what it takes to raise children. And I knew that I would not have the time, energy, or finances to do it the way I would want to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I'm just also with children all the time. Like even now, <laughs> I'm very intentional about, intentional about spending at least half my time with people under 20. Uh, and okay. that is, uh, that was very, I think a very smart move on my part. Do you feel like it 
I don't want to say you have a void because I feel like that's, I don't know, whatever woke word would go in there. Not misogynistic, but it's assumptive, right? To assume that you have a void because you don't have a child. But does it feel maybe like that need to just be around the youth? Well, I've always been around kids, so I wouldn't know what it's like to not be around children. Gotcha. I've just had them since I was 16. I've had a career. I've been a camp counselor. I've been a tutor. I've been a teacher. I've just always been around them. So uh, I think if I was working with adults all the time, maybe I would have some kind of, I don't know, void is the word. I think women from my generation faced a lot more stigma by Uh, choosing to be child free. There's a lot of um, conversations like this, like happy Mother's Day and like, oh, I don't have kids. And then I'm sorry, you know, like, like that. I was like, like, I must have lost. I must have a million miscarriages or, right. I, you know, my child died at birth. And that's just not the case. I think younger people that I know now in their 30s who are child free, it's a much more popular accepted place in life. Like I know so many women who are between, you know, 28 and 45 who are child-free by choice, don't want them, never want them. And nobody, as far as I know, really goes after them or comments the way, you know, I'm almost 50, I'm 49. So people, you know, my generation, I think maybe faced a lot more of this, like, Oh, do you wish you had kids? And like, no, not really. Um, not, for a minute <laughs> have I ever, honestly, and I'm not just saying that, like there was never a time where I feel like I missed out by not having children. And quite the opposite. I think I've had more women with children tell me I made a good choice, tell me that, you know, they, they, they really, you know, don't even like, I mean, I have one woman who worked in the cafeteria at a school I worked at and she was straight up and said, I have five kids and I only really like one of them. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> it's just like good for you. Um, yeah, it's the stupidest story, but it stuck with me. So I had a parent, and I don't think I'm breaking confidentiality with this because I won't say all of it. But I had a parent, and I have this weird obsession with middle names for kids because it just embarrasses them. And there's usually uh-huh. always a story with the middle name. So okay. I get to this parent, and I, um, the student was a special education student, so there's an IEP meeting, which means you basically get like an hour and a half to explain. You get to get, it's a very in-depth parent com- conference. So the kid's middle name was Hope. And I was like, yeah. oh, that's sweet. I was like, Why, why'd you name her Hope? And she was like, by the time I had her, I hoped I wasn't going to have any more. And I was like, oh, damn. And, but like that's people cute. can reach that point and... I don't think that's a terrible thing for you to know yourself and to be like, Hey, for me to be like better in the world, be productive, to feel like I'm adding value mentally, be happy. Like maybe a bunch of kids aren't the thing for me. Like it is, it is funny though, how like that has shifted. Is it the internet? Do you just give that all the kudos to the internet and being able to expand social circles, TVs, TV shows getting more progressive? What do you, do you attribute to anything? I mean, like you mean that, that it's more acceptable to be yeah, child free. And exactly. I think maybe the internet, I think more options for young people to, to explore everything they want to do in life. Maybe not such a sense of obligation to get married and have children. I think a lot of people have gotten into marriage and 
child, uh, childbearing and families, you know, that way, like they just, what they were supposed to do and they did it. And they're not necessarily sorry that they did it. They love their family and they love their children, but they probably more than me feel like they were missing out on something. Um, I know there was a study done in Israel that looked at women who didn't, you know, who had children. And there's actually a lot of women who, who do have children and then they're very depressed afterwards. And that I think gets less attention. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, it's just spoken about less that it's really hard once you have those kids and you're maybe not supported or you're not ready for it, or you are ready for it. And it's just a lot. And then you, you know, you do have to live for your children to do it. I think, you know, to do it the way people do it. I mean, my friend, uh, Michelle one time said for the first eight years of her child's life, she ate leftover waffles, leftover chicken nuggets and watched whatever movies they wanted to watch. And and she's happy with it. It wasn't a, a, like, she wasn't sad about it, but I think that's a huge sacrifice that you have to make to take care of these little ones. And I, you know, I, I feel for them, but I just, I made a different decision and yeah, it's like, it's fine. And, but I do, you know, back to your initial question, I think the fact that I'm around children so much absolutely just fills any void. I know what kids need. I'm around as you are as a teacher too. We're around these kids more than a lot of their parents are. It's a third of your day, man. You're like, and it's maybe not with one kid. So they don't get like the individual attention, but a third of your day is just dealing with kids as a teacher yeah or there's kids i've known for three years or four years i'll teach them from freshman up to senior year i meet their parents at graduation and i just look at their parents like god i know your kids so well right yeah because you got to be there Mm -hmm. like as the child pursued interest and discovered Mm -hmm. their like worldview yeah which is really cool it's really cool. It's a, it's a privilege, you know, and yeah. also I'm, you know, as I'm sure you are like the, the, I'm one of the cool teachers. So students will share a lot of their secrets and problems with me. So I know a lot of what they've gone through, probably stuff their parents didn't know. Um, and I think that's just a privilege to be able to have that role in a child's life. So I'm sure there's thousands of kids out there who would count me as, you know, actually, a, you know, a teacher that influenced them or, uh, especially doing more social justice activist type of work as a mentor. Now that I'm teaching and running this law program, there's a lot of students who are going into the law and having really authentic experiences in law because I'm able to connect them with the legal community. Um, 17 and 18 year olds can do a lot. Hmm. And I think we don't, we discount that. I've sent kids with very basic skills to law firms and they get hired for the summer, they get paid, they get paid 16, 20 an hour because they, they get to learn the basics, they do it well, and then they're kind of set to continue their education and they will be great paralegals or lawyers someday. No? I'm curious what those skills are. I'm being like- on time, staying off your phone, being polite, just being present um, with with front desk legal work, it's knowing your way around a case file, not losing the case files, making sure you know what your lawyer's calendar is. If they have to be in court, they're in court. Um, just being very, very almost aware. Quiet. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking aware. Aware. Yes. Situational observing. awareness. 
Yeah. And uh, just being doing what's what's asked of them, but really starting at the basics. I, I can't tell you how many law students will get to their first law job and pass the bar exam and will just stop filing. They're like, I don't do files anymore. I'm a lawyer now. And I don't really think that's a great practice. I think the best lawyers, are the ones who can sort of manage everything. I think that's why clinics, law clinics are really important in law school because you, you know, you learn your way around a case file, you learn how to deal with clients. I think children also uh, are very sympathetic and empathetic to people in a way that adults aren't. And with the law clients can come to you in all kinds of ways, like moods, they're desperate, they're upset, they're sad, they're mad they're scared. And I think I teach my students just to be very diplomatic and also to see all sides of the story. That's another thing for me coming to the law from an activist community. uh, It took a good two years for me to just stop being an advocate and start to see all sides of things. Growing up where I grew up and where you are, a lot of people who probably see things differently than me politically. South Jersey, which is where I grew up, is very Trump Trump country. Uh, I that. Yeah, Dude, and, and I, I drove by like twelve Trump signs today, and I'm like, Absolutely. yo, it's been two years, and like they didn't even update to the 2024 like Make America Great Again or Bring America whatever like the new 2024 slogan is going to be. It's still the 2020. It's like it, it's odd to me that you don't upgrade it, but it's a sign, and it's such a tangent. But it's almost like that sign of we're not giving up hope. Like if I take my 2020 sign down, the Dems have won. And it's like, or we could just move on. Or we could just kind of find what helps America and move on. Sorry, but yeah, like that was something I noticed today. I was like, why are there so many fucking Trump signs still out here, man? So many. And I'm also not one of these people that um, stop being friends with somebody because they don't agree with me politically. I have friends I grew up with who are diametrically opposed to everything I probably believe. And it doesn't matter. We're still friends because we still have common ground. And I also, if we're going to be political, which I think we can on a podcast, I was very active in very progressive social causes and movements for a long time. And I was on the floor of the Democratic Convention when Hillary Clinton accepted her speech. I was sitting with Bernie's national staff, with young people who were 22, who literally turned to me and said, I'm never voting again. Because right. Hillary got the nod versus Bernie. Nomination. And, and I, I watched, you know, the what you saw on TV the Bernie delegates were very present in that convention, but the media would turn down the crowd for the national television. So you would only really hear people cheering for Hillary Clinton. And then you wouldn't hear the Bernie supporters chanting and cheering and doing what they were doing. There was only one KPFA reporter on the floor, Charisse Delgadillo from Los Angeles. She was able to cover sort of a more authentic version of what was happening on the floor of the DNC in 2016. So, I am very, I'm not disillusioned. I'm very disappointed in the left in a lot of ways. And I, I'm probably, like I say, I'm so far left, I'm right. Like I just, <laughs> yeah, like so many things that could have happened didn't in for the sake of, I don't know what. 
Uh, again, I lived in the Bay Area for a long time, so I'm very familiar with like the Nancy Pelosi, Gavin Newsom type of Democrat. And those people have a lot more in common with people who you want nothing to do with than with us. Dude, I've and, j just as a weird side note, um, I've started anytime Nancy Pelosi's husband buys a stock, I buy it and then sell it within four days. And I just make 10% and then I'm like, I'm out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like that's, that, that's really dude, that's, I, I don't know, man. Like you're, you're so right that some of these, I don't know, some of the Dems, the higher profile Dems don't seem to be so democratic. They seem to be these uh, uppity capitalist elitists that you would associate with the conservatives, but yeah. they parade as a Dem. And it that's been a very odd thing for me to try to rationalize in my head. Like all UK, we're into these social movements and we're into like equal wages, but we have this like power vacuum and we have these people amassing mass wealth and we're okay with that, but they're supposed to be socialist and helping everybody. It just never added up to me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, you saw with Bernie's campaign, the split and just the way that you know, being here in DC, I'm very active in a lot of the political circles. Um, here and so I still have friends that do progressive political campaign work. They work on, you know, campaigns like the Stacey Abrams campaign or um, Alexandria um, Cortez, so AOC, also known as. Um, and they have worked with some great progressive candidates and had the establishment Dems just crush them and push them out of the way. And Obama didn't even endorse AOC. Um, you had, even in Vineland, where I'm from, my, my hometown, um, uh, one, I, I, won't, I won't, I don't know where she is with her political campaigns now, but she was running for, I think, Freeholder or, or you know, count, whatever that county seat is, and she's real progressive. And um, she had the establishment Dems, like, call her and just basically push her out of the race because she was just too progressive. Hmm. And I don't think that's very cool. So why, you know, I gave a lot of my life to, to this work and these movements and then to see it kind of turn out like this, like just the fact that Diane Feinstein won't step down. This is a great example. Diane Feinstein was not even endorsed by the California Democratic Party in the last senatorial race. Kevin DeLeon was endorsed. He is a city councilman from LA. He would have been a perfect person to build capacity in the party. And the established Dems are not about that. If they had been, they would have been building capacity in all of these different gubernatorial races. They would have been calling people at the state level to come into federal office. And instead, Diane Feinstein wouldn't even not run. She ran anyway and won because name recognition and she's a billionaire and she won. And Kevin DeLeon is still in the city council of LA and he should be, at the, he should be in the Senate. He should be. And yeah, it, there's no capacity built with the Dems. And the Republicans, the GOP, does a way better job at building capacity with young people. They get grouse um, roots, man. Like, it's funny. They, they tap into the ground. And it's like the Dems don't give up. And I know nothing about this. This is all me, whatever, conspiracy theory, drudge report, just reading shit. It's like they don't let go. you get that lobbyist money. And that's what keeps you in there. It's yeah. not the votes. It's the fact that you have this war chest of billboards and media and staff 
to just do shit for you versus yeah. you've actually spoken to whatever the lions club, you know, or like gone to an American Legion and figured out, Oh, these are the people gone to a boys and girls club spoken yeah. to whatever town counselors to be like, Hey, what's going on? Go to teachers and speak to a union rep to be like, Hey, what are your concerns? How can I help school? Like it just doesn't happen. They, they seem so aloof once they get in and, I've had some people running for Congress to represent Delaware, and um, I've been amazed at the discrepancy in earnings. And mm -hmm. like our um, Lisa Blunt Rochester, who I've just been following, but like she has like still two, three million dollars in campaign money, and the Republican wow. going against her like had spent it all, and he's got whatever like twenty grand left. And you're wow. like, why are how why do you have these millions and millions? How did you earn ten million dollars? to win Delaware, to win Delaware. You need 10 yeah. million to win Delaware? Are you kidding? We've got three roads. Like <laughs> yes, uh, even in my in my hometown in South Jersey, there's two people I went to high school with. So they're in, you know, one's early 40s, one's late 40s. Um, Michael Testa, he's the state senator for South Jersey and he's a Republican. He was brought up, groomed, he, he's a great politician. I, I think he builds bridges. He was endorsed by the NAACP in my hometown. He's a Republican. He's a, you know, he went and shook hands and took a picture with Donald Trump when Trump was in Wildwood a few years ago, which you saw that. Um, so the GOP just does a much better job at, at creating that capacity. I, I could tell a few stories of, particularly in California, where young up and coming politicians were just have their campaigns hijacked by older, more established Democrats who were given the opportunity to get the funding to run. And instead of those more established Democrats saying, I will support this younger person and build some capacity here, the uh, more established person would run and say, oh, well, you can run in four years. Well, that's just not happening. And I have two examples in my head. I won't say names, but um, of really great politicians who one is not even in politics anymore. And one is in county politics because he was kind of usurped by uh, establishment, let's say, Dems who ran their child for a congressional seat that uh... really was not put out to an open sort of choice. It was like and even this person is doing a great job, but his father was a very well-known member of the you know, Clinton administration. And so that's the person that got the congressional seat when Sam Farr retired. So that's what happens, you know, and it's, it's sad. And that's why we are, that's why we are where we are. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, um, she I'm sure has had tons of great staffers who could have taken over for her. She could have been grooming them for many years make a coaching tree. Like, it's funny, man, you get to that position and it just seems that power corrupts you and you don't want to let it go versus like finding some interest after 15, 20 years, like call, call it a career, man. 15, 20 years, you're good. Whatever you're in your sixties, if you got there in your forties and like, it's cool. You served like you should take pride in the fact that now you have all these people who have learned from you interned and hopefully have like some similar worldviews and like see if the populace still vibes with you.
Because if not, you shouldn't just be winning because you have a war chest and you know the infrastructure and you know whatever the two, three pockets where you got to grab votes. Like that just is, it just seems so un-American. <laughs> I know. And I think it's interesting to think about what they, how they see themselves. Like I really think Congresswoman or Speaker Pelosi thinks that she is the best person for that position and that's why she won't relinquish it. I think she believes that. I think she believes that about herself. I think she thinks that she has amassed this this structure, like you say, this this power, these connections, this this savvy in Congress, and she thinks that she's the best person for that position and that's why she won't step down. And I just I don't get that. Yeah, I think most people probably think they're the best at what they do in their position, right? We're all the heroes of our own story. Mm-hmm. It's um, having spoken with different people running for Delaware office, um, something I've been surprised at is the funding that doesn't come from the party till the party actually nominates you. So mm. if you have a primary, like that's personal finance, unless yeah. you have the name recognition where you have it in the bank already. And uh-huh. I'm like, if you believe in equity, that is the least most equitable thing in the world. Like it, you almost need a cap of like, yo, everyone gets a hundred grand. That's it. That's all you get to spend. Because then at least maybe you have a level playing field with fundraising. But these people who have these war chests, the incumbents, it's even with a primary, have uh-huh. an insane advantage with purchase Uh power that Uh someone who's ambitious might even be better and more aligned with their populace. Um, You just can't match it. You can't match dollar for dollar to get your name out, to buy signs, to get volunteers, to hire people to put up signs. I mean, to register voters. It's, there's such an infrastructure that goes along with it. And it's, if you don't have the cash, what are you going to take out a 50 grand loan to like a hundred grand loan to go on a primary and then have that in your debt because you wound up losing? Like that's one hell of a risk. This is true. And it's mailers too that cost a lot of money. To to do a mailer, even in your district, you probably have 10,000, 20,000 voters. So if postage is 50 cents each mailer and you have to send it to every single person and you have to do two mailers or three mailers a, a season, I've run campaigns and all that funding goes to mailers and how you can, um, pay for the the mail (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's that's a great little micro point right there Twenty thousand homes at whatever 50 cents for postage let alone the printing cost right and the and the effort that goes into creating the thing that was printed yep i mean that's eat god how it's a lot i'm curious were you raised by hippies why are you progressive (laughs) you know it's so funny no absolutely not my my parents are both Republicans. And Uh. my dad was a physical therapist. I mean, he was very open-minded, but he was not any kind of liberal and neither was my mom. But I think my parents taught me just to be like a good person. I was raised in the Jewish faith, which is like, if you're just a good person, you're a good Jew. And (laughs) I think that, uh, and then just my constitution, I was always very much a peacemaker amongst people. I got along with everybody. I was like in high school, I had 
friends that were all different. I hung out with the, you know, the popular kids. I hung out with the preps. I hung out with the drug dealers. I hung out with the rockers, the headbangers, you know, what we used to call and I were probably about the same year. Um, and I, and, you know, I grew up, I mean, Vineland where I grew up is very diverse. I was actually like white people are the minority in Vineland. Um, so I, I grew up in just like with so many different people and I just grew up to really, not be rude. My dad was like physical therapist, so he's very compassionate. He was a people person, but he had like a wicked, edgy, kind of crude sense of humor and people loved him for it. You know, he was from that generation where you could still be somewhat politically incorrect and be funny. Like Archie Bunker type stuff. I'm not saying like racist, like your father was a racist, but like, I guess that would be like the poster child of that edge. Was that the last edgy dude? Absolutely. Yeah. Archie Bunker. He was definitely kind of that vibe. Um, and yeah, and that's how I grew up, but I did grow up in a way that, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't mean to people. I wasn't a bully. I felt for the kids who were bullied. Um, I'll, you know, I went to camp, I was a camp kid. So I was at sleepaway camp every summer of my life from six to 16. I think that helped me develop a sense of independence and like, getting along a way to get along with everybody. Um, I went to the same camp. I'm a log and twigger. I went to log and twig. Anybody who's listening, I'm doubt it, but anybody's listening from log and twig shout out. Um, yeah. So I just, yeah, I just grew up that way, but no, there was nothing hippie about my upbringing whatsoever. Um, logging, being a log and twig camper sounds pretty hippie. Sounds very yeah. like to the earth kind of a thing. I know. You would think as, as the twig is bent, so grows the tree. That was the theme of the camp. It was really <laughs> funny. <laughs> the poke, it was the Poconos. Um, and I still, I mean, I'm still friends with a lot of all, like my camp friends, you know, and, and many of them very, very, we all have very different paths. Um, and we're all still friends because we have that, that growing up in common. Was Vineland, and I'm unfamiliar with Vineland, is Vineland like so city that your parents wanted to get you a little more country experience? Or is that just like the time, the the like thing you had to do with your kid if you loved your kid was send them away from you to like go enjoy summer? Why did you keep going to camp? You haven't been to Vineland. Vineland is very rural. It's actually the largest city by uh, mile. It's like the largest mileage city in the state but it's where a lot of your agriculture is grown jersey tomatoes jersey corn um and there was actually like not a lot to do in the summers in vineland so my parents sent me to camp because they didn't want me home just kind of hanging out doing nothing and also growing up jewish jewish parents send their kids to jewish camp so that it was a jewish camp so i was there with like a lot of jewish kids from philly uh, and New York. Gotcha. And I was able to get that experience and that culture from those, those students. We, I did not go to a synagogue in my hometown growing up. We were not a member of any synagogue. So I didn't have that, that community growing up. It was more just the way we were raised. And I think uh, interestingly enough, being Jewish helped me a lot with working with like the Latino and the social justice community because uh, all the lawyers in the 60s were Jews. Cesar Chavez's lawyer is Jewish. The Black Panthers lawyers were all Jewish. And uh, there was quite a few times where I was, I worked 
with uh, many groups on just Latino issues or Chicano issues. And uh, I've heard people defend me, you know, and somebody would say, well, you, you know, you're white or what do you know or something. And I've actually had people defend me and say, well, she's not white, she's Jewish. And I always thought that was really interesting because I never really thought of that, but um, there is a, a social justice root in the Jewish community, especially in, in like lawyering, uh, like during the McCarthy era, you know, a lot of those, the lawyers who were representing folks were like Jewish lawyers. Um, I guess I should add after college, uh, I went to college in Georgia. I graduated with a degree in middle school education and my first job was in a middle school. And I moved to South America and Mexico. I lived in South America and Mexico uh, for about two and a half years. And I just taught and learned Spanish and got really, uh, exposed to the, particularly, I spent more time in Mexico. So I have a lot of love for Mexico. I've gone back a gazillion times. I lived in the Yucatan. I still have my friends there. So when I came back to the U.S. and ended up in California, um, I was just really, it was really easy for me to slip into the Chicano community and work with those those social movements and with those issues because I had a, lo a lot of love for Mexican people and Mexican culture. And in California, um, you know, it is Mexico, really. They're, the border didn't cross California, you know, like we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us is the expression. So like, when my, like my dad would say things like this. When we went, when my dad came to visit me in California one time, he pulls me aside and he's like whispers in my ear. He's like, Jen, how did all the Mexicans get here? <laughs> Well, Dad, like they were always here. It was just Mexico <laughs> until the U.S. like took it over and naturalized all the Mexicans and made them Americans. So really, you know, we didn't cross the border; the border crossed us. And there's an expression that the older Mexicans will say, which is "estás en México," like you're in Mexico. Like California is very much Mexican, Mexico. And so for me, coming back from Mexico in like ninety, end of ninety eight. I just felt like that community and the people in Mexico had showed me so much hospitality and so much love that I came back very dedicated to working with that community on this side of the border in my home country and became involved in like immigrant rights, farm worker rights, um, ended up marrying somebody who was from a political family in California. His family is very involved in the farm worker movement. His grandfather was a, um, an organizer with Cesar Chavez. And so I think being a part of that family also gave me some credibility in the work I was doing. I do speak Spanish. I present as Latina. People cannot see me, but I am brown hair. I, my mom was Italian. So I look Latina enough that if people don't really realize I'm just like a white chick until you slide, act. you slide the accent in really well on the enunciations, right? Yeah. Like it just I've comes been, really natural as you've said a couple Spanish words. For so long and I've been around people who are you know Chicano and Chicana for so long that unless I'm being really lazy it's just it's you know it's ingrained in me I still speak Spanish every day I mean at school because I've so here in Maryland it's Central American students I have tons of students from El Salvador Honduras um, and uh, some from Nicaragua but more Salvadorians and um, Hondur Hondureños and so uh, and then I do immigration law. I, I do child immigration law with my law practice. Uh, we do special immigrant juvenile status visas. That's one of the immigrant uh, visas I'll do. I don't do tons of immigration work because it gets very complicated, but I do have a partner who is a 
like a legal expert in immigration. And so we take those cases. I want to ask kind of a stupid question because I'm interested in this and I want to give it just a little bit of context and feel free to tell me wherever I'm wrong or whatnot. I think it's very interesting when you're talking about Jewish lawyers coming out of the 60s. And mm-hmm. here's what I'm thinking, and this might be completely wrong, is the sympathy of persecution coming out of World War II. And then all of a sudden, there are African-Americans from the United States who are fighting in this war. So you'd be like, wow, you were persecuted, we're persecuted. But for Latinos to understand that, like I don't, I've read a bunch of World War II stuff. I've never come across like a Latin American country involved in World War II. So all mm-hmm. that to get to the point of, is like a, is someone who's Jewish seen as being persecuted in the Latin American community? Is there like really a knowledge of the history of like World War II and Jews and everything that went down? Or is it more like you're from this family, you look kind of like us, you speak that you've been around. Is that the more ingratiating trait if you had to like scale it? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know where that came from. And I was as shocked as you were to hear that solidarity with my Jewishness, because from my personal experience, being Jewish has done nothing but given me privilege. Oh, and, interesting. you know, yeah, I mean, I'm just, it's connected me with people. It gives me solidarity with, with certain people. It, it, it gives a lot, there's a lot of people like, Oh, I love, you know, like right, right now, a friend, a friend of mine's like, just really into Jewishness and swears he's Jewish, even though he's not. And he'll even say like, well, you know, our people. And I'm like, no, dude, like, (laughs) like there's, there's this very interesting, um, like connection to, to being Jewish that some people feel. So I'm not really sure where, where my friends were when they felt that it's just, that, you know, I, I think that particularly with the UFW and the Black Panthers, because I did, you know, work with a lot of old Black Panthers who mentored me in California, you know, if you're that close to Oakland and doing that kind of work, um, you know, I was just, I was involved with like a lot of political prisoner work. So I worked very closely with the Jericho movement. I was on the committee to free, free Chip Fitzgerald for many years. I ran Elaine Brown's uh Green Party nomination for uh, president. She was running to get the uh, to to be the presidential nominee for the Green Party the year Cynthia McKinney ran. So I was very close with Elaine, and Elaine Brown was the uh, for people who don't know the chairperson of the Black Panther Party from I think seventy two to seventy four when Huey was was incarcerated. Elaine took over the party, and she's still a, a, quite a revolutionary in Oakland. Um, so I got to work with her for a few years and all of those people, uh, I guess, just fondly remember the Jewish lawyers who they worked with over the years and just saw me as an incarnation of that. So, yeah, but I don't know where the, the Latino solidarity comes from other than they had a lot of Jewish lawyers or Jews in their life that were in solidarity with them. So they saw the, the social connection. Yeah, it's, like the Rosenbergs, you know, there was the the, the Rosenbergs were, I think, out of New, in New York, and they were Susan Rosenberg's. I think parents were persecuted as communists. Like the Communist Party had a lot of uh, Jewishness in it, and so the, there was like a history there. Really, mm-hmm. as in a lot of Jews were communists, or a lot of Jews were being accused of being communist. 
Probably a little bit of both. You know, they were coming from the, the you know, the, those Eastern Bloc countries and uh, they were red diaper babies, you know, and they were raised that way. And then the, the Universalist Unitarian Church came out of sort of that political movement of like, let's all just be one. And so I think there's probably, you know, a few people who connect with the, uh, I guess, the beliefs or solidarity in Jewishness. And I mean, Jews by our nature, I think, are also, aside from Zionists, which has another conversation I'm not about um, that at all. I'm very much about Palestinian, Palestinian um, autonomy and like a free Palestine. But, um, you know, Jews in general are very uh, social justice oriented, you know, and, and yeah, I think it does come from absolutely the Holocaust and being persecuted so horrifically. And there is a lot of, I guess, discrimination against them in places. I personally have never experienced it. Again, that's just not by my personal experience, but yeah. I think a lot of people have experienced it. So I get that. Yeah, it, just from a very much a layman's, and when you talk about whatever, like, not whatever, when you talk about privilege, I, I like, it's super hard for me to even try to be empathetic because I feel like, what my last name's O'Grady. I'm like, I guess Irish people were shit on for a while, but but like, I I... I have not felt that, right? Like I don't have family stories of what we had to overcome. And I, as we teach Holocaust units in World War II units, the, um, shit man, the poem's gonna escape me now, but it was something like, and then they came for me. Mm-hmm. Is, that the, sure. is that the title of it? Yeah. No, yeah. First they came for the first they came okay. for the blanks and then I did not stand up. Next they came for the blanks and then I did not stand up and then they came for like that's a real crappy synopsis. But when you read that to with 13 and 14 year old kids mm-hmm. and then you help them to understand the connection of like, yep, this is why we need to stop some shit sometimes. It it's like, yeah. oh, and it's so simple. But now you take it to the complexity of what happened in the Holocaust and the stripping of these rights. You're like, it really does make a lot of sense why it's such like a part of not the charter, but like a, a virtue that matters because yeah. it, it was stripped away. Like it's so hard for people to understand when you just keep losing rights, especially nowadays, like everything's fighting for rights. Well, I guess maybe the Roe v. Wade thing will help people to realize like, yo, rights go away. But it's, yeah. it, it's very hard to wrap your head around if you have not experienced or had family members who've experienced to help you understand it. Yes. To me, that poem is the essence of being Jewish. Really? Yeah. That's where I come from. That's my, you know, the paradigm, I guess I come from. And I think that's what my parents always taught me. It was like, just be a good person and you'll be a good Jew. Don't get caught up in how Jewish you are synagogue how much you go to synagogue and things like that yeah the metrics right huh the metrics it feels very catholic so i grew up catholic and that was the whole i believe from what i remember you know like that's the whole thing you have like check boxes yeah you got check marks what are your check marks what are your check marks it's like well what are we supposed to be doing well you just do okay but like what is the do well kneel okay kneel now stand okay stand now say this what am i even saying doesn't matter say it and you're like i don't understand latin what are we doing here it's like, right. but you're a good Catholic. Take this bread. Why am I taking the bread? Because you take the bread. And it's like, okay. And then you're like, but is that really what like the Catholicism should be versus, right. hey man, what are your morals? Like what, what values help the world? 
do that and you'll probably be okay. I, I like that vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. My mom grew up Italian, Catholic, went to Catholic school her whole life. And her mom died when she was very young. And they, she was always questioning everything in school. And uh, that's what they would tell her is you just have to believe. And she would say, but why? And they'd say, because you just have to believe. You just have to have faith. And she converted before she even married my dad. I mean, they were engaged and then she converted. So my mother is actually a converted Jew. My dad was the one who was born, you know, many years of like generations of Russian Jew. Gotcha. Yeah. So, uh, I grew up like kind of that way. Yeah. But that's gotta be an interesting perspective bringer, right? Yeah. Like to have like an insider into Catholicism come in and be like, yeah, actually, here's what I've taken away from studying two different religions. Like here's what I feel we should value, what sits right with mm-hmm. me. I like that. I like the openness of that. Yeah, it's, it's cool. It's good stuff. So I'm, you know, I feel well-rounded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that's, that's something, it's part of what I've enjoyed about the podcast. Like whatever we were saying about like just the range of people who've come on I feel part of what I'm starting to really enjoy with this podcast is just the, holy shit, you're from Montana. Now I get to know about what it's like to be a country dude in Montana. And oh my God, you wrote a book about 9-11 and CIA. Like that must be crazy. You're a South African endurance cyclist. Awesome. And you just get all these weird different perspectives that if you're open to them and you don't go in with like a, let me tell you what should be right versus let me understand it's, yeah. um, it, it just, I don't know. There's a piece that comes along with it. I think that's amazing. And I love the spirit of your podcast for that reason. Yeah. Cause that's what it's about. It's about, and that's what America is, right? It's just all these different people coming together, um, you know, to be trying to build something better than what we came into. And I also have been very fortunate to uh, work with a lot of native American communities and native Americans, uh, and I have like a different perspective, especially since coming to DC. I mean, in California, there's California, California Indians, um, the California tribes. And coming to DC, um, I was exposed to a lot more federally recognized tribes and native folks, and especially through Standing Rock and things like that. Um, just what, and I've been to a few different. Uh, tribal reservations. I've spent time in McDermott, Nevada. I've spent time in, um, in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. And just seeing how destitute some of those communities are through no fault of their own is, it's actually shocking to the conscience. Um, the first time I was ever in McDermott was 2010. And we were in a home of a woman who was hosting a pretty big ceremony that everybody would come to every year and she was outside in the house uh boiling water and i asked them like, why is she boiling water and, they, and this was an elder and they told me that she was boiling water so that she could wash her hair mm-hmm. and it just made me think of all the people all the college students and you know people who want to do good who would spend and raise all kinds of money to go out of the u.s and help communities in other countries when we have some real dire living conditions and infrastructure issues on reservations right here in the U.S., like there's a lot of Navajo country does not have um, electricity. 
Um, you know, people in, in McDermott, for example, are 90 miles away from the closest town where they could actually work. And people have this idea that so many tribes have casinos and get all this free money or get welfare or whatever. But in McDermott, they get $200 a month if they're on any kind of, um, you know, government assistance. And if they don't sign papers that accept, uh, that waive their rights to ever sue the, the federal government, they get nothing. Um, so, you know, Native folks in this country still have a lot of, um, you know, struggle. Um, and if anybody's interested in, in that, that particular issue, there's, there's just a lot out there, but there's this pretty cool motorcycle club called Red Rum and uh they do a lot of cool awareness and um just work around bringing attention to to native issues and it's it's like a cool optic because they they obviously look really cool they're all motorcycle guys they have a cool patch but they also like right now they're out in sturgis hundreds strong hundreds members of this motorcycle club it's like red run so re let me just make sure because i always say red drum but it's not red drum i was just about yeah. to ask because i'm like yeah. red rum is the um what was that jack yeah. nicholson movie yeah where you I'm see gonna it look the, the shiny <laughs> yeah and um yeah it's r-e-d-r-u-m so it's red rum motorcycle club and they actually have a website it's red rum mc.com and they are indigenous based motorcycle club founded in 2006 and i think that they do a really cool thing which is they are uh they bring attention to issues of you know native native communities they do a lot of uh social justice work right now like i was saying they're in sturgis south dakota and they did a a, a motorcycle run from like northern uh, South Dakota all the way to Wounded Knee. And then they had a ceremony there at Wounded Knee in the Badlands, and then they all proceeded to go to Sturgis. And so they're at Sturgis today. So you, they're all absolutely on social media, um, TikTok and stuff like that. And it's just, uh, Jason Momoa is an honorary member. <laughs> so he brings a lot of it. He's been bringing a lot of attention to their work. Um, but I think people should really pay attention to the plight of, of Native folks. And uh, it's it's just fascinating to me. So I've I've been able to be exposed to a lot of that here in, in DC. So I had um an ultra runner who's CBD who's a CBD inspired ultra runner Timbo Slice and he's a Native American. I'm not sure. I want to say Navajo because he was telling me about why running is so important to the culture and basically it's like their transition like their bar mitzvah their quinceanera it's like mm -hmm. when you become a man when you become a girl you just run and the town chases you or the tribe chases you but ah. his thing with um the infrastructure that i was taken back by is that their doctors and their counselors that go to the reservations that he's been on never stay so your rehab counselors, when they build relationships, the joke is like, will you be here next month? Because it's almost like like a, like a um, green peace or a peace corpse thing where you go, you do your yeah. time and then you're out and then you go back to civilization where you can have a real life and you never yeah. get to build the relationship. So what winds up happening is you don't know your patient and you just wind up prescribing pills like crazy, which leads to addiction. 
And his thing is, can we go more holistic and focus on health, wellness through exercise and maybe some anti-inflammatory CBD? What's wrong with that? Smoke a little pot and like get off of it and mellow out. And maybe that'll help your anxiety versus here are some prescriptions that I won't be here for six months or the next six months and see what the repercussions are on your body, even if you're abusing them. And that to me, I was like, that's a fucking injustice. That just seems so shitty that there's this cycle of medical providers who are supposed to be helping who aren't there long enough to help. Yes, absolutely. That is a problem. Medical care on the res is a very huge issue. Indian Health Services, it's federally run, right? So another thing is, you know, in the U.S. Constitution, uh, only the federal government can deal with native uh, tribes. So the state can't really make deals or have too much influence on tribal uh, politics or lands or services. It has to be the Fed. And uh, even like the, I think there was one of the first uh, with the Cherokee, it was like the, there was laws against uh, free, against slaves doing business with the Cherokee. Like the Cherokee in Georgia knew how to grow corn, knew how to farm the land. They, they knew what they were doing. And when the settlers came into Georgia in like the 16, 1700s, they wanted the Cherokee lands because it was already farmed and already cultivated. So they kicked the Cherokee off, proceeded to take their lands first. And then, you know, there was all the, you know, it was just like that. And so I think there's some phenomenal work being done around indigenous health practices there's some great um, like health practitioners who are native who just trying to raise awareness like that. There's a lot of like work around um, ending addiction. I mean, when one thing like the suicide epidemic on Native American reservations is like nothing you could even imagine. Um, when I was I was out again in Nevada McDermott one year, I was there 10 days. And just in that time, two young people committed suicide. It, like suicide epidemic is real serious with young people. Um, so it's just stuff I think we should pay attention to. I think the federal government does throw a lot of money to certain uh, tribes and certain tribal issues. Like right now, I, I work with a, with a broadband company as a client. And I'm working, like right now, the one thing that the Dems and the Republicans did agree on was bringing broadband to everybody in the United States. So there's a lot of money, more money than you could probably spend on broadband. And if a tribe can apply and 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 get the funding for broadband on a reservation, um, they can actually get tens of millions of dollars to do so from the federal government. I mean, there's just so much money in it. The issue is just building the infrastructure to even have computers and the home. Like they need, you know, if you're going to bring broadband into a house, you need power and electricity in the house. And so there's there's so much to do, but it, there is a tension. I think the, is it, uh, Deborah Holland, who's the, the Secretary of the Interior now, she's Native, and Biden appointed her. And I think that was a good a good call, you know, because Trump's Secretary of the Interior just started opening lands to mining, and, you know, he just really wanted like, to privatize everything, whereas there was no talk of, like, Native issues or missing and murdered women or, you know, suicide yeah. or health issues. But that is, at least there's awareness of it. But I think as as citizens, like, if we care about social justice and we care about, you know, inequity, um, and we care about particularly inequity and infrastructure and access to, then you have to look at like United States, 
uh, you know, Native Americans and, and sort of look at that and whoever's local. I mean, where you are in Delaware, it's the Lenai Lenape, you know, and so the Lenape are like Delaware, South Jersey, and they have a huge Red Drum um, chapter there. Actually, really? Maryland does too. Yeah, every state almost has like a little motorcycle club chapter. Dude, There's I, a great powwow too in uh, South Jersey that they do every June. I've got to check out. Do, do, does the Red Rum Motorcycle Club do they have a focus where if they raise money they try to spend it specifically on something? Well, they'll do it locally. So every state has their has their club, and then they'll do like something focused on maybe a community member or something happening in that community. Okay. Um, somebody, when one of their members is sick, or maybe they'll raise money for something going on in that area. So they're gotcha. definitely localized. They have a national president and national structure, um, but they um, they also have all the state the state clubs all have their own presidents and vice president and then they run like that yeah see that's that weird it not to get too political or too like ideological or too like hey you have to be right left lou right but like that's very local controlled which is the yeah. total republican thing right but it makes yeah. total sense from a social standpoint that's completely democratic, right? Like you're a Democrat if you want to care about these social issues and the Republicans are like, it's all about local control. It's like, or we could have both. Maybe both make sense because local people know what's going on and like who needs the resources. It, it just, yeah. I don't get how it gets so complicated. I really don't. I, um, I don't know. Well said. I hope, so this is, is this part of, I think a while ago you had mentioned something about it took a little bit of time for you to like make money as a lawyer. Yes. Were you just giving up your time to pursue passions? Is that why? Like, can mm -hmm. I send you, if the IRS sends me a bill, can I just plea for your help? Cause I'm a teacher and you'll like get me out of trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The joke of my school is I, I won't take money from teachers for, for consultations. I do a lot of student loan consults and everything. Actually, I'll talk to teachers about anything and um, I, I'll, I will work for the gift card, like Dunkin' Donuts gift cards. So I'm still <laughs> interested in that. But I think when I first came out of law school, my area of expertise really was the educational rights of incarcerated children and particularly Spanish speaking children charged as adults. These are not paying clients, you know, like, like, like the, the, uh, you know, the immigrant child from El Salvador who was caught up in a capital murder case and needs his educational services or an IEP. You know, I'm very proud I got the first IEP in the adult jail here in Montgomery County for a, an, an ESOL immigrant child, no um, as a lawyer, yeah, as an educational advocate. Um, when I was in law school, I went really just to be a better advocate for kids. You know, I realized teaching my students in California, I was in an alternative school in California, so I should say that. I taught in an alternative high school. All of my students were, you know, uh, farm worker uh, children, families, or um, just we're rural California, Watsonville, where your I was in Watsonville, California, where your strawberries and your berries come from. Next time you go to the grocery store, look at a package of strawberries. It is from Watsonville. Like that is where every strawberry in this country pretty much comes from is Watsonville. Oh. So strawberries are very labor intensive. So you have tons of farm workers in that area. And my students were alternative high school students. They were kicked out of, or they failed out of, or they were low in credits and they came to my school. And I realized that they were A, all Latino, B, they were super harassed by the police. 
and they were all gang impacted. So they may not have been like gang members, but they were impacted by the Norteños or the Sereños or whatever gang was sort of active. And that this was their social group, you know, and gangs have some positive, I'm an ally of the gangs, you know, I think that gangs have some positive attributes, you know, belonging, they, you have a friend group, you have a social community, you have somebody that has your back. It's just like any family, you know? Um, but the state of California has the most repressive gang laws. They're called gang enhancements. They're 186.22, California criminal code. And anytime you're charged as a gang member, which in California is very easy to be charged as a gang member because you just have to be part of a group of three or more with some identifying characteristics. So you're all in the same color. You're all wearing the same, you know, you all have tattoos. You're in an area that is known gang activity. Your family is gang or like the way that they attach gang enhancements to kids in California is criminal in and of itself. And I just saw really good kids getting caught up um, with gang enhanced sentences. So it would add 25 years to um, any crime. Yeah. So kids would get in a fight. Kids would be charged as an adult. You add a gang enhancement. Now you're 25 years to life. 18 year old kid gets in a fight. It's assault. Whatever that normally carries plus 25. If it with two of his friends that happen to be wearing backward baseball caps. Yes. And if you Google my name, Jen, Jen Laskin and gang California, you'll see like all these news articles come up because I started advocating for my students and um, became like a teacher who worked with gang members. And then people would just call me to sort of work with these kids and uh, their families. And I was just did my best to like humanize them for the court or uh, just work with like, I, I mean, before there was, you know, police training and de-escalation training for police forces 20 years ago i had the chief the you know the chief of police in my classroom and the gang task force officers in my classroom like telling the kids what they look for in the street so i'm like you know if the students understood what the gang officers were looking for maybe they wouldn't do what they were doing to bring heat on themselves so i was doing that education with my students you know and and again in the social justice movement there's this we don't mess with cops mentality, but I didn't see any other way to educate the students other than bring the police in and like have a neutral space where we could ask questions and the cops would like show the kids the gang ID card and they would just see what the, what the cops were checking off. And so like, and then we had a chess club and we would play chess against the district attorneys and we had all the gang district attorneys playing chess with the kids. And so you'd have these kids with like neck tattoos, just sitting there playing chess with the gang prosecutors, having this conversation of like, yeah, that tattoo, that's a mark. That thing, that's a mark. And and I felt like I just wanted to create awareness in that. So, you know, I, I started, um, you know, working, working with those students and working with those communities. And then it kind of got into my realization that these students had a lot of great teachers in their lives. They didn't have a lot of great lawyers in their life. I was doing the prison work, ended up going to law school. And uh, when I, I didn't even know what the bar exam was when I started law school. I, I had no idea what corporate lawyers did. I really didn't, I wasn't interested in it. I did not realize how lawyers build. Like we build by the 15 minutes. You know, lawyers bill every 15 minutes. You bill a 0.2 hour. 
So um, when I first came out of law school, really the only, not the only, but I was offered a fellowship with the Maryland Office of the Public Defender as an educational advocate. I did that. And I was just working with kids who were locked up. So when I finished that and it was time to get like a lawyer job, I didn't really have that many, that much interest in going into corporate or personal injury or law, anything like that. It just didn't interest me. It wasn't my skill set. I was just, uh, I was versed in court work, but as an advocate, not as a litigator. So the position in the school I'm in now sort of opened up. I had been long-term subbing, studying for the bar, and I landed the position I have now. I just lucky, blessed, whatever, to land in a high school that had a law program and they needed a teacher. So I was teaching right after, you know, I think I passed the bar in June of 2016 and I started teaching in August. So I didn't have a lot of time to build my legal skills. So I was a barred attorney and I just started building my brand by doing like student loan webinars and consultations. And I took whatever work I could as a lawyer to build my lawyer skills. And I was doing a lot of like pro bono consultations, learning about different aspects of family law and things like that, which is what people needed. Uh, particularly people who are like low income or low resource. And I would work as a lawyer in the summer. So I would put, you know, I joined the bar associations and every May I would send out an email to everybody and say, who needs a contract attorney? Who wants to teach me how to lawyer? And I was always a good writer. I did a lot of academic writing in law school as I'm bar, I was on law review. But my, my big research paper in law school was the constitutional violations in school dress codes against gang members. <laughs> That's what I mean. expert is like, um, you know, what, what constitutional rights do gang members have to dress like gang members at school? And, and that's what I, that's what I studied and researched on. And uh, so when I came, you know, into practicing law, I wasn't, I don't really have any skills that were worthy of being billed at the 15 minute <laughs> increment. But what happened was, Kobe, you know, I would work in the summers and I would do work with employment or, you know, whatever I could get, a lot of immigration work. That's how I got into court. But then when COVID hit and I was home all the time, I started doing Jenny Justice. I started meeting all these lawyers and I started seeing myself more as an attorney. I was able to do lots of trainings because I was home all day teaching. So I was able to interact with the legal community during the day. When you're teaching, you're teaching all day. Yeah. You cannot interact with the legal community because they're all at work and I'm teaching. So COVID really brought me to my legal, uh, you know, uh, I guess brand and business. I popped up my website. I grew the little law firm I have, um, other law firms, you know, during COVID their clients stopped paying. They weren't able to pay their rent. I didn't have rent to pay. I didn't have any clients to lose. So my business could only grow. And then, you know, I met a couple business people. I was always really into starting LLCs and business development because my activist friends were getting, like you say, with tax bills. Yeah, I'm, I'm all here for it because I would have artist friends that were 1099 contractors that did not know to set aside 32% or 38% of their pay. Um, when it came tax time and they would get a $4,000 tax bill because they had performed in a play and earned $15,000 that year. And why am I getting a $4,000 tax bill? So I learned business law and small business development. And I really worked to kind of get activists 
and social uh, entrepreneurs to see themselves as business people. Mm. And uh, I just started meeting more business clients and that that just built into a law practice. So now I, I do like, and then I have mentors, you know, I put myself out there in the bar association listservs, like I need a mentor in business law. And I had a couple really great, very successful business lawyers just say, I'm here when you need me. And so I would, when I had questions, I'd set up calls with them. They would talk, 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 talk for an hour. I would take copious notes and I learned that way. And I just picked it up. Um, I'd have students get sued in a car accident and I would go and deal with their case for them and represent them in court. And that's, I would just learn that way. And I would get assistance from lawyers who were insurance lawyers and big defense counsel. And they would give me the tips and help me figure it out because I was doing this pro bono work, right? And that's a part of law is pro bono work. So that's really how I built my law practice. And now I'm like much more confident in my small business uh, work and, you know, I guess skills and legal knowledge. And um, I have a couple clients who have kind of grown, let me grow with them. And that's been tremendous. So I'm working for clients I never thought I'd work for. Like I, I'm general counsel to a private security guard company. You know, I advise, uh, you know, a big company that does counterterrorism training and all kinds of work, you know, internationally. I never thought I'd work with these people. Uh, but when it comes down to it, we have a lot more in common than we would, than I would have thought. Um, and it just works out, you know? And again, I, I really left the left. So that allegiance to like any progressive or, you know, any kind of pol political allegiance for me was, was killed in, you know, 2016 or even before. So I don't have any problem working for people who maybe vote differently than I do or care about different things. I mean, nobody I work for is like a straight racist, like they're, you know, they're, that's not, <laughs> that's like, that's kind of a deal breaker, but I find that there's fewer people out there that really are truly crazy, evil, you know, racist, uh, you know, practitioners of, and, uh, those people I don't mess with. And a lot of people don't mess with them. You would, you would be surprised. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why anyone who took themselves seriously would want to be associated with them. Um, unless you were trying to like figure out from a sociological, unless you were studying them, right. To be yeah. like, Hey man, we need to document this shit so that we know what these fucking traits are and we can try to yeah. head this off in some way. Um, yeah. I think of like mine hunters on Netflix where like yeah. those two guys just went to all the jails and just all they did was meet with the craziest killers ever. And it was like, how come you're friends and bringing him gifts? It's like, we're actually trying to study him. It's like, okay, that makes sense. Like that's sense. why you hang out with serial killers. Makes sense. Uh, dude, that sounds like an amazing, impactful, like one of the most amazing impactful internships experiences. Like, like oh, a slow, yeah. steady, progressive, not overwhelming. I think of like student teaching and you get maybe three months and then it's like, cool, you're good to go. But the fact yeah. that you're able to build up these mentors, were, are they, are, are mentors like pretty open? So the stereotype I'm dealing with from that thought is the billing. Lawyers bill for their time. Time is everything, right? Like there yeah. is not, it's not passive income. It's all about hours and billable yes. hours. So like, why do they give up their knowledge to somebody like you who's a nobody? Why do they care about you? 
I wondered the same thing. And it's because they, I think, feel like they owe it to the profession. Again, pro bono work is a requirement of most state bar, bars. Like you yeah, have to you? give some percentage of your work to pro bono work. Yeah. Do you mind and, getting, I'm sorry, it's, I guess, a sure. question within a question, but I'm super curious about that too. Like what, can can you just talk about like why that is or what that is or even like people like, hey man, I'm fucking broke, but I know lawyers do give up blank amount of their time. How do I approach a lawyer to see if I yeah. can get some of their pro bono? Do you mind talking a little bit about that? There's an awareness in the legal community that legal services are overpriced, that market rates for legal services are overpriced and out of most people's reach. And from that, the American Bar Association has this requirement that you know you have to support some kind of pro bono work, or you have to contribute to a legal fund at your local bar association. Every bar association has a pro bono section or committee that people can apply to if they have a case. And lawyers, most lawyers do have one or two pro bono clients that they have been working with because it's so gratifying. I think for me, lawyers who mentor me are way more collaborative than I imagined. So let me start with that. The law profession is way more collaborative than I'd ever imagined. Like I oh. never thought it would be so collaborative, but lawyers don't know everything. And even the best lawyers don't know everything, even in their practice area. So if you're on these listservs in the bar associations, you pay to be on them, but there's always emails coming out. It's like, can you send me a template for this complaint? Can you tell me, you know, does anybody have this, this document or can you, you know, like I, I need a social media policy right now, for example, I just sent out a list. Like, does anybody have a social media policy? So I don't have to redo it. And can um, I just interject no. for layman understandings? So if somebody were to find a template that was acceptable in some sort of court, then all of a sudden it's like, Hey, we should pass that on because this has passed some sort of like legal rigor or is it just no no. it should come from the lawyer it should because the lawyer has to sanitize it like well no that's what i I mean so if the lawyer sends out the template it was like hey it worked for me in california if you're in maryland you know state specific yeah very state specific so law is very state specific it's very it's very illegal and you could actually be disbarred for doing anything in another state so like i work with people in other states yeah that's a big deal so (laughs) Um, and I could get in a lot of trouble for that. I had a friend who needed something done in Pennsylvania and I sent early on, I sent a message out to the listserv and they were like, absolutely not. Should you ever try and write, even write a document for Pennsylvania, you must find a Pennsylvania lawyer to do that. Um, what I will do for friends in other States, like I have a friend in New Jersey right now who I'm helping with a, a, a family law issue. I will, uh, I've got, you know, I went online, I found the paperwork for her from the court that she is in, in her jurisdiction, and I will help her fill out the paperwork, but she has to submit it. Gotcha. And then, you know, I will ask Jersey lawyers who I know for advice if it comes to that. Um, but most lawyers, especially the business lawyers, the big money business lawyers, um, I'm, an, I'm a consultant to Arnold and Porter, which is one of the biggest billion dollar law firms in the world. Um, I consult to them on immigration cases because their pro bono, Guy was a mentor to me in the housing clinic in law school. So there's definitely an awareness, in, especially in big law, of they know how much money they make. I mean, I have a friend who's a retired litigator. He, he billed $1,200 an hour. He realizes what he did. And you know what? He was like the first person. He's retired. When I got, I coach mock trial. 
he helped my mock trial team. He went through the case. He parsed it out for us. He was like, spent two days on our case just to help the kids get started because there's a sense of inequity, even with those types, I promise. Oh, wow. Um, definitely realize what's going on. And I think they help me because they realize who I'm helping. So if I put a call out, like I have a student, this is a pro bono case. He's been, he's being sued for $15,000. He was in a car accident and it's not his fault. There's people who are like, yeah, let me help you with that. Because we're, we don't, nobody, no lawyer wants to see somebody get, get, um, get uh, rolled over by a bad lawsuit. No lawyer wants to see a bad lawyer take advantage of somebody that doesn't have the means to defend themselves or to, to hire counsel. So there's definitely, I get a lot of, I think, so I have a lot of social capital in the fact that I very much charge below market rate. My sliding scale is 50 an hour to 250 an hour. I mean, I, and, and then again, teachers gift cards, like there's my scale is so, so vast. And most lawyers just tell me I should charge more or they're more judgmental about like, why aren't you charging for this? Or are you really going to, you know, you've spent a lot of time on this. So I think I could, I don't know. I just, I just won't charge people what they can't afford. You know, it's just not, it's not my thing. Um, and because I have the teaching and I'm working as a teacher, that subsidizes everything. Yeah. Like I have, and I have benefits. I don't have to work for a boss and bill 80 hours a week or, you know, I just don't have that pressure. So I have the privilege of what we call um, client selection. You know, I can choose my clients. Um, That's a privilege. Yeah, dude, I bet. Just the, um, God, I said like three things. The thing I'm trying to get better at as a podcast person is like, pick a lane, Sean. Pick a lane. Because I have so many thoughts when people speak and I'm really trying to get better at like not interjecting as often to like stop the flow state. Um, so I want to stay on the pro bono, although I'm very interested in the sliding scale and like, does that affect your perception? Does people's perception of you like, oh, she can't be any good. It's only 50 an hour, which I doubt if anyone spoke to you, they'd be like, wow, she's really smart. But pro bono wise, like, is yeah. there actually a standard like does the like quarterly? Is there a report submitted of like, we have 160 hours a week and we gave 20 of them to this pro bono? Is that how that works? Yeah, depending on the state. I believe the DC bar requires so many hours of pro bono a year. And if they don't do it, they have to pay something into the legal fund for the DC bar. Okay. I know I used to work for an attorney, an immigration attorney, and I did so much pro bono work that I would run it through his office. And then I would tell him, count this case as your pro bono work and let me run it through your office. Let me use the office, let me make copies, let me use the office address. And that worked. He didn't have to do anything other than let me use the office Dude. and let me make copies. And he was able to write that off. So it really depends. Um, a firm like Arnold and Porter will do pro bono work, um, but they'll also win such big cases because they can take some cases, they can litigate to awards and get attorney's fees at the end. So if Arnold and Porter tries a case that like a housing case, for example, they might have a $1.2 million legal bill at the end and they'll get that. And it just goes right into their pro bono legal fund. And then they're able to keep doing that work and the associates love it. Like the first year lawyers or second year lawyers, they never get into court, but if they take a pro bono case, 
they can use their lawyer skills. They get to talk to real clients. The clients aren't corporations. They get to go to court and it's, it's a lot of fun. And it's really why, you know, everybody went into law to make a difference. Hmm. You know, very few people, I don't really know anybody that's gone into law just to, just for the black magic. <laughs> I don't know any lawyers like that. The black I mean, magic? Yeah, What's that? I, yeah, every, every lawyer I know really wants to do good. And I think for me, they, they will help me and spend the time with me because they know that that's what I'm doing with their knowledge. And they also don't want to, they, they don't want to see me do a bad job, you know, cause you don't want bad lawyering. Bad lawyering is the worst. I think if anything, sometimes a pro bono lawyer will take a case and then put it off and not pay enough attention to the client. And that can be problematic. Or sometimes on the flip, pro bono clients are very entitled and they have a lot of demands uh, of their attorney that are almost unrealistic and then comes like this, oh my God, this one pro bono case is driving me crazy. Um, so it's, it's all different, you know, but every bar association will have some level of, or some type of pro bono program. Now, there's then the need vastly outweighs the availability. Yeah, I bet. Um, but I, I just try and give people, yeah, I try and give people the most realistic advice. A majority of the time, and I'll finish with this, people think they have a case and they don't. So majority <laughs> of like the short consults I'll do, I do free consultations. Like anybody can get a 15 to 20 minute consultation with me. That's on principle. Um, I know lawyers that think I'm crazy for that. They, they, they say people have to have skin in the game. I will do that 15 or 20 minute consultation and I'll listen and I'll look at maybe whatever documents they have. And a lot of the time it's just like, you really don't have a case like at all. Like I did a call with somebody last night, a friend of a friend, you know, a 40 minute call. He's got an employment issue, um, in, in another state, but I wasn't, I had worked in that state. So I was familiar with a little bit of what was going on, but he was just like, I think I have a defamation case. I think I have this. And I was like, defamation. No people it, to have a defamation case that the, the, the falsity, the lie has to be published public. Mm -hmm. And this was just people talking badly about him at work. <laughs> so I'm like, take that off the table. There's no defamation because there is just gossip. So that's that. And then we went into, you know, this probation he's being put on for work and what's that about? And, you know, my, my response to him was like, that's, they're the boss. You don't have a contract. You're an at-will employee. They created this. It sounds like, yes, they are pushing you out. So what are you going to do? Decide if you want to keep your job and apologize and do better or document, you know, what you're going to say so that if, when you get fired, you can get your unemployment. And so it was like, those were the routes he could take. So a lot of people are like, you should, you know, call a lawyer, like, especially in the workplace. Um, but you don't have a lot of rights in the workplace. If you don't have a, a union contract, if you don't have a negotiated contract, like teachers really enjoy a lot of, of workplace, like job security. Yeah. And I've worked with a lot of teachers that don't even understand that. Like that's something as a grievance officer I'm, I, and in my new position here in, in Maryland, I'm always telling teachers like, you really, that's, you really don't have an issue. Like your principal can, you know, being a jerk is not a grievance. Like your principal can be a jerk. <laughs> that doesn't mean that they're violating your contract. And so sometimes 
new teachers working with other teachers are spending way too much time on teachers who are very upset and feel like there's all this injustice and all this illegality happening when really you're, you know, they're the boss and that's the reality. So I spent quite a bit of time just telling people that like, you don't have a case this, you know, find a new job or do what they're asking you to do. Or, you know, this, this isn't, this, this is not a, a valid claim or you do have a claim and here it is. Dude, that is so kind of you. The fact that you can, take someone from that kind of like emotional state where maybe they hear a buzzword and they're like perseverating on it, right? The fucking dog with a bone, like, yeah, I gotta take, that's the alley. And then all they need to hear is someone who is knowledge, that they can trust, that has credibility to almost talk them off the ledge to be like, whoa, 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 we gotta refocus your attention here, man. Stop, stop, false dream, false dream. Here's what's practical. Like, it's so nice that you do that and offer that for people because it probably is only like a 10, 15, maybe 20 minute conversation because you can just kind of cut to it and you would hope people would come at you with the respect that you're talking about where it's like, all right, I'm getting this for free so I can't be overbearing with hours on hours of Mm -hmm. my minutia. Yeah. And often I just Google their question and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, but, but like WebMD, I'm, I'm saying, let me Google it. And then I can find the right yeah. website. You know, I'm like, here's the law. Let, let's go like 50, 50 entries down. Here's the law that you need to understand. Boom. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. I mean, with custody. Oh my God. People have so many custody issues because they agreed on a custody agreement or they, one person's been paying child support in cash for this many years. And now, like, I cannot tell you, family law to me is the most underserved and needed area for litigation. And people get outlawed in family law a lot. It's very unjust. The most recent videos I did on TikTok were custody, child custody videos. Right. And they just went by. I mean, one went particularly viral. And I got like, I think it's up to forty-five or 50,000 views at this point. And it's just how to write a third party character letter for child custody. And it turns out most states don't even accept those letters, but so many people are, if you can imagine how many people are on TikTok looking for child custody information because they're being outlawed by an angry co-parent yeah. and uh, it's vicious. And you know, the average cost of a custody case is 5,000 to $40,000. So if when- one parent, often will get like the money from a, their, their, their parents or uh, they'll fight them just out of spite. And it's so ugly. I just, that's when, tragic. When you say 5,000 to 40,000, you think about a, a family splitting. Um, I immediately go to student debt and mm-hmm. I'm like, imagine if that money were set aside for the child's college versus this lawyer to figure out Tuesdays and Thursdays are yours and you're going to pay me this. Like that's where my mind goes. And then the stress that can be put on these kids. And maybe as a teacher, I just think of like, how's a kid going to focus on breaking down the outsiders and pony boys life? If those are the conversations and the stress, the parents then bring into the home from the financial drain, maybe they have to now get a second job. So now who's watching over the kid? Right. And yeah. like, who's helping the kid with homework? It's so many ripples in the pond. 
or they're stressing about the custody and they're talking openly about it to friends on the phone and the kids are hearing it. Yeah. Or people are often think Post. that they're entitled to alimony and they're not. That's a big one. It's like, well, I'm, you know, it's like I had a call with somebody a few weeks ago. He said, tell stories. So uh, she's dealing with a divorce and she doesn't work and has four kids. And the, they had an agreement and the husband wasn't uh, honoring the agreement. So she couldn't get him to sign the papers. And um, I'm like, what are you going to do when you get this divorce? Like, you're not going to get a ton of alimony. If this guy, you know, how much does he earn? Like, just because you were married this much time and you're, you're not working and the judges will not award you alimony, just, you know, you can't bleed a stone. If your ex is making 50000 a year, and you've got custody, okay, you might get some child support, but there's only so much money that this person makes, and that judge is going to tell you to get a job. You know, that judge is going to absolutely expect you to start working. You're not going to be able to be supported through alimony. And then there's the flip. I know people that have, you know, are paying alimony and child support, that, you know, and they're just watching the ex, or they believe the ex is just using the money on themselves and really it's on the kids. I mean, it gets so ugly. So I think I don't practice family law. I've done some of it. It was definitely, I've worked for great family lawyers and I, I have a very close friend who's an amazing family lawyer. So I've helped her from time to time with litigation, but it's nothing I mess with. And she, you know, my friend who's a great family lawyer, she's taking a $20,000 retainer now. She will not even take your case if you cannot put $20,000 in her escrow account, because that's how much it will cost to litigate that case probably. 20k that's just the start does that guarantee me everything i want in my divorce no that's another thing with family law you are not allowed to a get you can never any lawyer that tells you they're going to win their case is the bad lawyer no lawyer can guarantee that they're going to win in court ever if they tell you that especially criminal law you hear that a lot like i'll get your kid off right run just don't know but um, the $20,000 will guarantee you'll have a great, a great litigation and you know, you'll have a great lawyer and you'll have a great trial. But, you know, she went to court a couple weeks ago. She was telling me um, she had proven infidelity. She had pictures of the husband with his girlfriend. Like literally they were practically having sex in these pictures and she got to court ready for trial and they were going to make a, the feature of the whole trial was that this man had been actively cheating on the wife for years and that they had all of this proof and they were going to spend the whole trial bringing out the fact that this dude was a cheater and an infidel. And the judge in the right after opening statements was like, I don't care about the cheating. And I wrong that, that that's kind of where I was too, as you were explaining it. I'm like, why is it such a big deal? Why would that be the cornerstone of your case? Because the wife was entitled to so much because she had put so much into the marriage and she was, Huh. completely defrauded, I guess, out of her, what she thought was a marriage and loving marriage and life. And, you know, this guy here was ducking out. Judge felt the same way you did. He was like, I don't care about that affair. Bring on something else. So my friend, who's a phenomenal attorney, literally just had to like redo the trial, like in the trial. I mean, that's <laughs> a good litigator. So that's why you're paying $20,000 because that lawyer did it. She could do it. And, you know, it was all about divorce and alimony and what she was owed. But if she couldn't bring in that issue, she had to bring up other ways and reasons why, you know, the the property needed to be divided the way it could be divided and the alimony needed to be divided the way it could be divided. When you have a lot of money at play, people will fight to keep it. Yeah. Or I mean, get 
That makes sense. But I guess like the degree of which you have cheated, I'm surprised that that matters in, I guess it might matter in like something like custody. Cause if you're whatever, you're a womanizer and you're going to the club or the bar every night or whatever, like maybe you're not a, a, a fit parent, right? Like I could get that argument, but like I owe you more alimony because I've been cheating on you for five years. Like divorce, some divorce. Parents, I'm some surprised. States some states care and some states don't. It just depends. And some judges care and some judges don't. That judge was like, I don't care. Talk about something else. I got three days. You know, they had scheduled a three day trial. And on day one, he was like, don't care. Doesn't matter. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why you pay. And that is so stressful. I can see I'm not, I'm not good under stress. So I don't like that kind of work. I don't like litigation. I like, I do custody hearings. I do court, but it has to be like not contested. I have to know the outcome before I get in there. And then it's, it's easy. Yeah. Is that pretty common knowing the outcome? Cause you're like, Hey, I read the law and I filled out the form properly. So I, I get my yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. For immigration. Yeah. Cause we need, I do a special immigrant juvenile visa, which requires custody, a custody order. And so, yes, I basically have established what I need to establish so that the judge will award custody. And I've already gotten the other parent to consent to the custody. So I know there's not going to be another parent in the room contesting because they've already given up their rights. After, like that's already happened before I get into court. So all I need to do is lay a record and say, this is why this parent should have custody. Here's the factors for special immigrant juvenile status, which is uh, federal law. They need to be under, kid needs to be under 21, unmarried, um, can't return to the home country. Like there's five factors. I know all that's already, already established. So yes, there is. And sometimes for immigration, people will get a divorce because they want to marry somebody else. So in that, those kinds of situations, like in Maryland, we have a, a, a consensual divorce, uh, easy, and both parties have already signed the mutual consent agreement. So I'll do that. Like both parties have signed. Here's the consent agreement, Your Honor. Sign it. And the, the judge, it's a quickie divorce. And the judge like, bye. Gotcha. Those I'll do. But even with my immigration uh, retainers, um, I'm very clear. Like I'll go to court once for you if there's more of an issue that's that's it. This case, I can't, I'm not doing that. Like <laughs> this divorce has to be easy. What gives you and I, I don't want to mislabel it. Cause especially speaking to a lawyer, like words matter. Right. But I'll call it like anxiety or apprehension. Like, why don't you enjoy the chess or the real time wit battle? The figure no. out. No, I don't like, I'm not that quick on my feet. I'm not that quick of a thinker. I'm one of those people that will like get in a fight with somebody and then an hour later or the next day be like, I really should have said that. Do you remember really that from Seinfeld? What was the Costanza line? And it was like, well, I slept with your wife. Do you remember that? It was yeah, about trip. Oh, dude, it was this but Seinfeld like, thing. True? Yeah, Costanza like four days later resets up this entire embarrassing scene for him about shrimp just so he can hit the guy with like the perfect comeback line. And yeah, it's like, yeah, well, Bob's wife is dead. And he was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am really bad at that kind of thing. And so for me to be in court and have to think on my feet and cross-examination and questions. I mean, I, I coach mock trial, but I have litigators who coach with me. So I can do a lot with my mock trial team, but the nuances of trial and our team is awesome. We made it to playoffs this year, but that's because I have like five different attorneys who specialize in 
every single aspect of mock trial. Like my kids have an evidence coach. They have a coach who works on their opening statements with them and they just zoom in. So I cop different friends from law school. You know, one thing is I have a big legal community. And so I will reach out, you know, say, do you have 30 minutes today to just zoom with my kids and listen to their opening statements? Sure. No problem. Because right. Lawyers want to help. So then the kids get on and they're super cute. They read their opening statements. And then my friends who were, you know, district attorneys or general, you know, attorney general in DC will be like, give the feedback, you know, and then my big, probably most, uh, important attorney coach is a department of justice litigator, his kids on the team. He loves hanging out with his kids. So he just, he's always wanted them to see him in a way that's not being like a super nerd. Right. Because that's always how he has been. So he just like loved Cody. He loves it. And we've convinced the the little son, the, the like the, the daughter graduated this year. We, we convinced the little one that he has to be in mock trial because a, we needed his dad to keep the, <laughs> the lawyer coach, but also we're like your legacy, you owe it to the team and we'll give you any position you want. <laughs> like we had to like negotiate with the, the little brother. <laughs> Because we like did so good this year that I just really, we just all really, the whole team wanted this attorney coach to come back and we did it. You know, I'm like, whatever food you want, I'll get Chipotle every week. I don't care. Like (laughs) I got you. So um, the, the, the the mock trial has been a lot of fun. So that's gotten me around the, the court rules and stuff, you know, and I just have a lot of crazy stories. So for me, I'm just a better probably teacher of law. I teach paralegal studies too at the college. I do one course in that. And I just draw from a lot of the real stories that I've been in, but I've learned a lot from being in court and I like it, but trial work is like, you know, big trial work, like complex litigation. It freaks me out. It drives me, it actually drives me crazy. It's too much. All the discovery and like the back and forth, it just makes me mad. Because you feel like there's some sort of injustice that's not being said, brought out, understood. Uh, it's just like people trying to get something, you know, like I have a client right now who's involved in a lawsuit and it's a stupid lawsuit and the person is suing just for money. And we ended up having to like hire defense counsel and they're dealing with it, but I'm working with defense counsel to get all the discovery. And I just get mad just looking at what they're asking for. And like the, the person who's suing us is like going to the doctor still and like in therapy. And it's just rap it's like you and everybody because they're suing our insurance company really right so that's the kind of stuff i i just oh, it drives me crazy like how do you deal with that type of complex litigation and having to turn over like all these records that just like take so much time to pull together mm-hmm. like why you know um when it's just for the money so well you know so that's the kind of stuff i don't like at all you know the emotion. some lawyers like that did it yeah, it sounds it. very like you still have that passion and emotion, which almost might be like like it's it's a blessing and a curse, right? Because it makes you want to help people, but at the same time, like the nuts and bolts are it, it's law. It's not supposed to be passion. It's supposed to be yeah. like just black and white. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like all I want to do is report the lawyers of the plaintiff suing us for like. <laughs> being bad lawyers <laughs> and the, the defense counsel like no 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 that's not the way it works and i was like let's just report them to the bar and they're like no that's not really the way it works. 
So, but, but the thing is, and I'll say any lawyer that tells you they can do everything is not a good lawyer. Like lawyers specialize. So if I came and said like, I'm a great litigator and I'm a great business lawyer and I'm amazing with employment agreements, like that would be all wrong. You yeah, know, you're really good much. at like a few things. And so I really focus on what I focus on. Yeah. It sounds very similar to like a medical practitioner where you could have like a mm -hmm. general practitioner that's okay. Yeah. You were smart enough to research, Google around, know some basics. But if like things are really going wrong, I need to go find a specialist. It's the same as in education. Like if you've ever worked in elementary school, yeah. it blows me away that teachers, cause I have worked in elementary and it blows me away that teachers will be reassigned to different grades every year. Yeah, like, dude. I think that is a travesty. Like, Teachers will be a fifth grade teacher one year and then they're teaching third grade the next year. And I'm like, there's so di there's such a different expertise. Yeah. Why is that okay? It just can't be. It's the same with law. You just can't do everything. And, and solo practitioners, you know, I think suffer from that. They have to take anything that comes in the door sometimes to pay the bills. And then they end up just being overwhelmed. So I try not, I, I don't have to be that person. Thank God. I'm super curious about like sucking up to a judge, any experience, any tips, like, does it, is there any chance if you don't actually have a legit relationship that the first impression actually matters? Judges <laughs> you know, are like that. very judges. No, judges will not hook you up. Be no judges will just listen to the law. There's no, there's no favors. There's no sucking up. If anything, they're, you know, I've learned the most from mean judges. Hmm. When I did a custody case one time, I had the judge yell at me, tell me to take a lunch recess and go learn the factors of custody and come back and argue my case again. <laughs> and the only reason I couldn't cry was because I had to go learn the factors of custody and rework the whole case. And then, and yeah, it, she just tortured me, but I, I, I ended up winning, but it was it was brutal. Um, so I have very rarely met a judge. Sometimes a judge will like help you a little bit. Like one time I had a, an old, old judge in Frederick County, which is real conservative, Maryland, tell me to proffer my witness. And I was just like, what does proffer mean? Like proffer. And he's like, question your witness counsel. And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> like, so he was nice about that. Yeah. You know, like at least a few he didn't say, look it up or, you know, he just, yeah. met. so I think there's things you learn like that in court, but there's no sucking up to any judge. Judges don't like that at all. And I tell students, like, I guess I can end with this. Like one thing a lot of students will tell me is, well, I'm a great arguer. I love to argue. So everybody tells me I should be a lawyer. And I say, that's the last thing it's really oral, oral advocacy is probably the last skill you need as a lawyer. Because no judge is going to, A, let you argue for too long. They don't want to hear you sit there and talk. It's the writing that makes you a good lawyer. You have to be a good writer. And that's what makes you an excellent attorney, not speaking. You could never talk and be an excellent attorney. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the written, the writing skills are crucial. The talking is good for clients to kind of convince them maybe that, you know, calm down or see things your way or, you know, tell the truth. Another, a lot of clients will lie to you, which is shocking. Yeah. I never understood that aspect of life oh where, why you try to die with the lie of presenting yourself <laughs> in a certain way. 
like the lawyer is the ultimate like priest fucking confessional bear your soul and let them sort it out that's the point that's why you're there bear your soul confidentiality you know in the public defender's office my desk was in the middle of the office and so i heard so many funny (laughs) stories and so much so much funny stuff you know, just clients being like, that's not me. And the lawyer saying, sir, we have you on video, like stealing this thing. And the guy being like, nope, that's not me. And like, sir, I absolutely have, like, this is definitely, yeah. <laughs> we're like, I've never been arrested. And the, and you know, like, sir, I'm holding your here's file. Here's your mugshot. <laughs> yeah. Like here's your file. Like, it's crazy. But you know, I, that's another thing. I don't do criminal law at all. I'll do bail hearings to get people out. Like on principle, I will do a bail hearing. But other than that, no criminal law. Gotcha. If you want a high bail, you know, if you were able to like be in prison forever, like hire me to do your criminal case. But <laughs> other than that, I do not like criminal law. <laughs> I love how you know your strengths. And dude, I really love your story. And um, I, I don't know, man. I thank you so much. Is there anything we didn't get into that you, I know it's been two hours and we've just I been know. spraying around. Um, so is there something we haven't touched on that you wanted to officially put in a pod? No, I just want to say thank you. I thought a 90-minute podcast was long, but look, here we are two hours later. I will say if people want to follow me on TikTok, it's JennyJustice555 on TikTok. I'm just checking to make sure. So that's JennyJustice555 on Instagram. I'm Jen Laskin Legal, and it's underscore, I think. I'm going to double check that. It's J-E-N-N-L-A-S-K-I-N underscore L-E-G-A-L. I post some of my videos there. And yeah, I just, you know, people feel free to reach out and, you know, ask me anything. Definitely check out the videos. I think they can be helpful. But this has been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Dude, thank you, Jen, and um, or Jenny. And uh, all the descriptions or all the links will be in the description of the pod. So if people just want to click on something, it'll be in the description of the pod. Um, thank you. Thank you for advocating. And thank you for kind of inspiring me just like, Maybe when I get my little pension or whatever, I'm going to take a little more risk because if I'm into writing and if I'm into reading and the analysis of things, it's funny how I think you can get pigeonholed and all of a sudden you get like past the point of connecting and helping kids. And it's not that you're useless, but then a lot of teachers, man, that, that out to pasture 10 year where you're kind of miserable and you're upset that kids don't understand how to blank. And you're like, well, every kid has never understood how to be blank. It's just the 30th time they haven't understood with you, but it's their first time, right? Like it's age appropriate silliness that can like get you fed up. Um, I just love the idea of like, why not law if you're used to reading and analyzing and writing and maybe making policies. And I like the idea of um, getting involved with the union later on in life to like almost like a little foot in the door to see if you really get into it. Um, Those were a couple of really good takeaways. So thank you for those. You're welcome. I mean, I went back to law school at 38. I was not the oldest one in the class. And I also recommend paralegal studies as a career. You can make as much as a lawyer, if not more. It's a two-year program. And you can do all the things a lawyer can do as a paralegal. You just can't show up in court or give advice. Love it. That's but you can do some really good work as a paralegal, especially in this area. Especially where you are, business law. Delaware is full of good business lawyers. Yeah, that's the whole corporate thing. Everyone's incorporated here, right? Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yep. All yeah, right, so good luck. I hope you have any questions. I certainly will. Um, thank you. Yeah, again, and thank I you just so much, man. And um, thank you for your time. Enjoy the rest of your night.
You too. Bye, Sean. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Thanks to Andre Psyche for supporting the Getting to Know You pod. Search up Andre Psyche on social media. Give him a follow just for the fuck of it. Dear listeners, if you've enjoyed getting to know today's guest or just want to support this upstart podcast, go to our Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, your donation will help with all the costs associated with producing the Getting to Know You pod. Don't forget the three free ways to support the pod. One, subscribe to the Getting to Know You pod. Two, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Three, go to Apple, write a review. And finally, if you or someone you know would like to become a sponsor of or advertise on the Getting to Know You pod, we would love to partner with you. We have a wide-ranging global audience that would like to get to know more about your brand or business. If you're interested, just message us. See you.